welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, James and I chat with Elena Natalinsky, founder of Ironfish. We talk about what got her into blockchain and ZK tech, the work she's been leading first on Beanstalk and now on Ironfish, and how a super light and easy to set up node infrastructure is a key component of a private blockchain system. Now, before we jump in, I want to share two ways that you can connect with the ZK community and stay up to date on all the activity in the space. The first is the ZK Mesh newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter that showcases the latest research, articles, videos, and resources on the topic of ZK and privacy blockchain tech. The next one comes out in a few days, so be sure to sign up today. The second way to connect is to sign up for the ZK Podcast Events and Announcement newsletter. Sign up here to get the news on what's happening in our podcast community. I've added both of these links in the show notes. There's also more links further down in the show notes to telegram groups or YouTube channels or any other ways that you want to connect. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Aave. Aave is an open source, decentralized, non-custodial liquidity protocol on Ethereum. With Aave, users can participate as depositors, meaning they provide liquidity to earn a passive income, or they can act as borrowers to borrow in a over-collateralized way or an under-collateralized way. Think one-block liquidity flash loans. Aave has also deployed a new market on Polygon's sidechain to let users pay much lower gas fees. Assets can be transferred from Ethereum with the Polygon bridge and put to use on Aave's Polygon markets. You can learn more about this on the Aave blog. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Aave. Now here is our interview with Elena from Ironfish. So today, James and I are chatting with Elena Natalinsky, who's the founder of Ironfish. Welcome to the show, Elena. Thank you so much. Really glad to be here. And nice to see you again, James. It's good to be back. (laughs) So, Elena, this is the first time that you come on the show, but I think we met actually a few years ago in Buenos Aires. Is that possible? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The hackathon. And I feel like I've seen you over the years, like, I, I don't know, was that the first crypto event you were at actually back then, or were you already in the space? That was actually the last one that I was at before I quit my job. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think I remember that. So let's hear a little bit about your background. What were you doing then? And like, what have you been doing since then? Yeah. So the way I got into crypto is actually through those hackathons, through the global hackathons. And I guess to go even back further than that. So my boyfriend at the time, now husband, his roommate was Juan Benet, who is a founder of Filecoin Protocol Labs. And one day he says, you know, I have a friend, they're doing a dinner party, do you want to come? (laughs) And, uh, and so we drive over there and have this dinner and everyone there is talking about Ethereum. This was like 27, like mid 2017, I I think, uh, like early 2017. And I remember on the, on the car ride back, I'm like Googling the car, like, what is Ethereum? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) <laughs> because because I still didn't didn't quite get it after the, all those conversations. And there was a hackathon announced, the first ETH Global Hackathon called ETH Waterloo. And I remember having this conversation where, you know, I was thinking, like, should I go? Should I not go? This this sounds really interesting. And Dylan said, you know, like, this is going to be the first hackathon. Like, probably everyone's going to be there. Like, if you're remotely interested, you should go. So I buy my plane ticket and I go to the ETH Waterloo Hackathon and I was just blown away by how open the community was and how many people were there. So the story that I like to use of like how I got into crypto is, you know, I'm doing this hackathon. I'm, I'm doing yeah, video streaming and IPFS using like a quote unquote, you know, stable coin. And my MetaMask integration isn't working. It's 3 a.m. I'm like tearing my hair out. <laughs> not sure what's happening. It's not working. <laughs> and I asked someone for help who's a mentor. And the mentor comes over and says, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're doing wrong. It seems that it should work. But Dan Finlay, who made MetaMask, is like right, <laughs> right behind you. <laughs> so I do like a 180 with my chair. And I asked Dan Finlay for help. And at 3.30 a.m., Dan Finlay and I are like debugging MetaMask on my computer. And I was just blown away. I was like, whoa, like I want to be part of this. This is so cool. <laughs> so <laughs> that's cool. You were like, you were right in the thick of it right off the bat, it sounds like. 
what were you actually doing at the time though? Cause you were already a dev, right? Like it sounds like you had already kind of like you'd finished school. You were doing, you're working professionally, right? Yeah. I was a software engineer at Airbnb working in search, autocomplete search to be exact. <laughs> so definitely not crypto, but Airbnb, I like funnily enough, actually did have a pretty strong crypto presence. There was a Slack group that I think at some point before I, before I left got to like 400 people, <laughs> people talking about crypto, <laughs> but it was like very peripheral. Like it was just casual conversations. So this hackathon was actually the first time that I got to write any like Solidity code. It was the first time that I could like think about, you know, how does this tech work? Like what are the, what are the limitations for it? Yeah. So that was a really cool experience. And then the next hackathon I did, I was actually with the OpenSea uh, co-founders, uh, Alex and Devin, if you know them, and we built an NFT generator. So like drop and drag like pictures <laughs> and then you make NFTs. This was like 2017, 2018, like wow. the winter of. <laughs> and the next hackathon, which was ETH Denver, someone asked me to do a talk. And so I did a talk on like live coding NFTs on stage. So it was like a 30 minute slot. And I, <laughs> so the whole premise was if I can live code on stage an entire NFT smart contract with like some very basic UI, then so can you. As like an inspiration for look how easy this is. And also to kind of demystify this myth that ERC-20s are hard. Because at the time, 2017, if you remember, it was all about and like ERC-20s like on the blockchain technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that talk was really successful. And so I got asked to do this talk again and again. And one of the people from East Denver that saw me give that talk were the Zeppelin guys, the open Zeppelin guys who were in Buenos Aires. (laughs) So I got kind of involved with them because they were working on upgradable smart contracts, which I thought were super important in the space. So I kind of dove into that kind of area and wrote uh, an article for them of like how these things work and like like under, under the hood and different kind of approaches to it. And they asked me to be at their conference in Buenos Aires, which was at the same time as ETH Buenos Aires. So I got to do two talks in Buenos Aires when you saw me there. <laughs> Amazing. But like at that time, yeah, you weren't like, were you interested in zero knowledge proofs already by ETH Buenos Aires? I'm kind of curious, like when did the zero knowledge stuff kind of cross your path? Oh, yeah. It was actually from that first hackathon. It's like the hackathon that keeps on giving. Um so I the Waterloo. It. Yeah, yeah, the Waterloo one. That's, I did not go to that, and I am bummed, because that's like, that has come <laughs> up so often on this show. As like, I mean, that's where CryptoKitties was like that's presented. Right. I don't think yeah. it was like built there, but it was presented there. There's like tons of teams that were formed. But that's where you first came into contact with Zero Knowledge Proofs. Not quite, but that's kind of where I got the idea. So the project that I was working on, for which I did get a prize for, which was very nice, um, was video streaming in IPFS. I'm sure like as a podcaster, you probably know this process of how to how to like take an MP3 file or an MP4 file and break it down into a different format so it can be streamed somewhere else. So the way I did an IPFS was, uh, or the way how streaming works is you break up a large file into smaller files. And as your player kind of downloads, it actually downloads the next immediate file chunk to play it mm-hmm. for you and then kind of discards it. So I broke up the file into smaller chunks and put it on top of IPFS. And then from IPFS, you could actually stream it with the smaller chunks. But the actual process of taking the video and transcoding, meaning transforming it into from one file to much smaller files, that was done on AWS. Because for my demo, I can, you know, you can't do it on Ethereum. You can't transcode a video file on Ethereum. That doesn't make any sense. So that got me thinking of like, well, if I were to do this project in a fully decentralized way, where would this heavy computation go? And, you know, for Ethereum, it doesn't quite make sense because it doesn't make sense for every computer in the world to transcode a video that you decided to upload somewhere. And that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, can you make kind of a network of computers that would do this heavy computation of transcoding a video and then get some reward for it? So then I started thinking of, okay, well, if a computer in the world does do this heavy computation, how do they prove <laughs> that they've done honest computation so they can get rewarded, <laughs> which is a pretty perfect setup for zero knowledge proofs. Cool. Um, and so at the time, like I actually talked to the Truebit team because they were kind of in that space as well. And they have nothing to do with zero knowledge proofs, but they were working on, you know, basically like if you do do the computation and it is dishonest, how do you get caught after the fact? And so I thought that was a pretty like flawed solution. Um, no offense. I don't want to. <laughs> 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 this is <laughs> this is the idea of like you didn't want to do the 
submit and then find out later it's wrong, but rather submit it perfectly. Like be sure in the actual submission that this has been done right. Yeah. Validity um, proofs kind of. Exactly. And so the way I stumbled <laughs> upon zero knowledge proofs is I went to a Coinbase event and I met Joey Krug and I kind of knew who he was at the time and I wanted to, you know, talk to him more. And, you know, Joey Krug is not the type of person you do small talk with. <laughs> you can't really ask him about the weather. <laughs> so I asked him about this problem. Like, you know, I'm thinking about honest computation. What are your thoughts there? And Joey Krug said, well, I don't really know, but I have a friend, Charlie Noyes, who's thought about this problem before. And so then I go talk to Charlie Noyes, and Charlie no- Noyes um, sends me the Pinocchio paper. The oh. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but this is like yeah. the... It's like predecessor to a lot of the ZK stuff today, right? Like, exactly. This is a very academic... It's not... Is it a library? Is it a construction or something? It, it, well, it's a paper... Well, I guess like a, a work of research from Microsoft and IBM Research by four authors, I believe, hence the, I think it's PGHR. (laughs) Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, it was kind of like the first paper that made ZK Snarks a bit more efficient for generic programs. And the paper itself is actually very short. I think it's something like 16 pages or something. And I remember reading that paper and I remember thinking like, firstly, this is very complex. I don't have the background knowledge to understand this, but also, wow, <laughs> mm. like, like this tech is really, really cool. And I kind of immediately understood that, okay, like this tech is still too early to be used for something like video transcoding, but whatever this tech is, like that is the future. Like zero knowledge proofs are the future. I don't know how they're going to be used, whether it's privacy, scalability, honest computation, like whatever that thing is. I don't know, but I want to be part of this tech. Cool. So did this, I guess this brought you right in contact with Zcash. I'm guessing like the next step, like if you're, if you found the Pinocchio paper, like, right. Would you have then been like, wait, who's doing this in the space? Who's working on it? Like they were the most visible group using zero knowledge proofs in 2018. At some point though, you jumped in like quite deep into it. The the talk was this talk at ZCon 1 in Croatia mm-hmm. that would have been a year later where you were presenting like the details of sapling, right? Yeah. So like what what were you doing in between those two times? Yeah, I'm just curious what you were doing then. Yeah, so I don't remember the exact timing, but either Buenos Aires was like right as I was leaving Airbnb and then ZCon 0 was when I was like a week or so after leaving the Airbnb or something. It was like very close. Okay, so you said that you left Airbnb and you were kind of, I guess, it, like you were looking for your next project or something like that. But what what did you do after that? Did you spend a lot of time doing research? Were you like doing some op- open source contribution? Yeah. What were you up to? Yeah. So I at that, at that point, I kind of knew that I wanted to work with privacy and I wanted to work with, with zero knowledge proofs to some degree. <laughs> this was like still like exploratory. And, uh, and part of the reason why I left my job was because I wanted to focus on that full time and starting to get kind of hard. <laughs> and I actually met an investor, his name is Elod Gill, and he's pretty prolific in Silicon Valley, also like a very kind human. And we had a conversation where, you know, he basically said like, what would it take for you to, you know, focus on this full time? And, you know, and I said something like, I need some funding, I, I want to hire people and mentorship because I've never done a company before. He was like, great. <laughs> so that was, that was a pretty easy conversation. So I hired my friend from Facebook. So he actually lives in Canada and he worked at Facebook when I was working at Microsoft. That's how we met. And then he decided to uh, work remotely in Canada. And so that didn't quite work out. And so I was able to grab him and to hire him. And honestly, for the first six months after Zcon Zero, it was just research. It was just research on different privacy solutions how does Monero work? How does Grin work? Grin was just coming out. Oh, yeah. How does, you know, Zcash work? And, you know, also research in Xenological Proofs, like how does elliptic curve cryptography works? Because we were both engineers, but we were not cryptographers whatsoever. Like how does Diffie-Hoblin work? Like, like very, very basic stuff. So we actually like started from like basically from the ground up of like learning how all this works. So for me, um, when I when I learned, it works through a forcing function. And so DEFCON 4 was coming up. So I decided to sign myself up for a talk explaining how zero knowledge proofs work. And we got approved for that for that talk. And that talk was October 2018, I think. And so that was, you know, a forcing function for we need to learn how this tech works. <laughs> and yeah, so the talk was actually very much how our learning experience went you know, how does basic cryptography work? What's the history behind it? How do elliptic curve 
you know, math works. Um, and then kind of a build up to here's like a very high level of what, how ZK snarks work, but it, but it was like a mid-level because the frustration that we were working with is there wasn't any mid-level kind of conversation around how ZK snarks work is either very high level of like Alice and Bob are running through some cave. Right. And then yeah. it went from that level <laughs> to like way deep of like, you know, this is how the construction works. And so it was very difficult to totally. kind of get the high level of how, <laughs> uh, of how like, ZK Snarks work. <laughs> that is so true. That is, like, I, I I feel like it's starting to be filled in a little bit more. Yeah. But I, I completely appreciate that issue of, like, I mean, I've given talks on zero-knowledge proofs, which are very, very high level. And they're so far away from, like, actually using them that I wonder if it's it's like a great introduction maybe for people to imagine business cases, but it's not mm-hmm. a great introduction for developers to really jump in. And this right. is what you were providing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then at the time, like I think Zocrates was the only DSL, domain-specific language for snarks. So a DSL is kind of like you write in pseudocode and in the background, the language will construct like circuits for you, which will translate to the zero-knowledge proof. And for Zocrates in particular, the thing that they've done, which was super convenient, is they would auto-generate a city smart contract for you that you can deploy for verification. Nice. Which was like, like actually like a very small step, but it was very, very useful. <laughs> so yeah, so we did that. So I did that talk at DEF CON 4, and that was great because I got to meet, again, a lot of people who are working in the space. And my experience so far, like being in crypto in particular, is the people are extremely welcoming. And if they see that you care about the same problems that they do, you know, they will help you, which is such mm-hmm. an such an amazing, like, like encouraging, open and welcome system that I, you know, I keep wanting to emphasize that, especially now that, you know, there's like a lot of toxic things happening in various communities. But I do want to remind people that in comparison to other industries, this is amazing. <laughs> Although what you are also talking, like your period and also mine, like my onboarding period was mostly during a bear market. Tarun mm-hmm. has mentioned this a few times, like you mm-hmm. make the best friends during a bear market that's because true. that's when the tide is out and nobody really cares what you're doing. And the people who are there are pretty genuine. Whereas, you know, when it's more bull market, there's a lot more people. It's a lot harder to tell kind of who's who's going to stick around for the long run. Totally. And uh, who's here to help you instead of help themselves. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, that's, an, that's a tangent. I think it does, <laughs> like I, I'm with you though. I think as a, like given how how early so much of this stuff is, there is so much to build that often like if someone is genuinely interested in like working on it, I feel the same way. Like I've seen people in the in the study clubs or in the groups in the telegram mm-hmm. groups or whatever, like really start to emerge just as like genuinely curious people who continue to ask questions and continue to try to contribute or help out somebody else, even if they're not in an advanced level. Like those are the people who start to kind of really show. Yeah, exactly. So throughout this journey, like when we're looking at privacy mechanisms, and part of the reason why, you know, we started Ironfish and back then it was called Beanstalk is because I really, you know, still believe that zero knowledge proofs are going to be a big part of whatever future tech is going to come out. But going back to my previous example, they're not advanced enough to do things like video transcoding. So for for us, it was kind of important to get involved with the tech, but also kind of build a platform for it so that the tech can be used later on when it does get a bit more evolved. And then, you know, looking into in terms of, okay, I really want to give back to the space. I want to contribute to the crypto ecosystem. How do we do that with the most impact? And privacy was just the resounding answer. Everybody at the time was working on stable coins and scaling and to a very large extent, they're still working on those things. And very few people were working on privacy. Like Grin was like the only new project in that space. Aztec was just kind of starting to happen. And so for me, it was like, well, yeah, of course we need privacy. How are you going to make a global borderless, unbiased payment system when everyone can see your funds and, you know, like impact, like that would impact the holder of those coins if everybody knows how much they have. Totally. And so when looking at privacy mechanisms, you know, we looked at Monero, Grin, Zcash, and many, many others. Like the Zcash sapling approach was by far the best. And so then when we looked at Zcash as the company and the product, and again, like, I'm very, very thankful for them. So everything I say is like, you know, I don't want to dismiss that. I think they're an incredible project and team. And in terms of community, like they're probably the one of the most kindest 
most open people. <laughs> and so for us, like when we looked at Zcash, we thought, oh, like we could take Sapling and we could transform it to be, you know, something more usable uh, in terms of a privacy coin, but also use that as kind of like the groundwork for becoming like a privacy shield or privacy layer for other assets. And so that's still like our very long-term goal. And there's a ton that we have to do to get there. But for us, it was like, this was a, a clear starting point of Sapling is, you know, in my opinion, still clearly the best uh, privacy solution. So how do we get close to that and work with it and figure out how to expand on it? So yeah, so for <laughs> when we started reading the Zcash paper, especially like, well, the Sapling spec paper, it's like a mammoth of a document. It's like 140, <laughs> 160 page document. And it's very complex. <laughs> so it took us a very long time to get through it. <laughs> and so you decided, you know what? This is a bitch. I'm going to help other people. <laughs> Basically. Because I, I, re- I remember you saying something along those lines. I was at that workshop and I remember you kind of giving everyone a heads up. It's like, I, I think, wasn't the name something like, I read sap- the sapling paper so you don't have to or something like this? Yeah, that was my tweet. Actually, James oh, that was helped tweet? me with that tweet. <laughs> yep. yep. It's a good tweet. <laughs> I thought that was great, though. And I think that that's exactly the kind of stuff that this space needs more of in terms of like, I guess it's education. It's it's kind of that bridging between that deep technical side of it and mm-hmm. very, very high level, helping people kind of navigate through it and potentially use it. Is a video of that talk available anywhere? Unfortunately, it's not because it was labeled as a workshop and they weren't recording Ooh. workshops. Uh-huh. But the slides are available. So <laughs> cool. Yeah, I want to add those. If you have them publicly, I think it would be fantastic to add to the show notes. You Like, you don't know how many times in the groups I get so many questions for, like, onboarding resources. And I can kind of be like, go to the podcast, go to the... I, like, I'm trying to direct people in different places. But I think the, those kinds of resources should really be highlighted because um, they're super useful. Well, uh, I have a you know very distinct memory of being at ZCon 1 and sneaking into the back of the workshop while it's in progress. And the specific slide about all of the different key derivations that are part of Sapling, um, you know, immediately clearing up my understanding of how it works. This very distinct memory of exactly oh. what it looks like. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> oh, I've actually had um, some of the people working at the Zcash Foundation and Zcash approach me directly or over Twitter DMs and say, you know, we're using your slides because it's much like a more accessible kind of lookup material than the spec in terms of like onboarding or explaining to others how this works. And so that was also very cool. So let's talk now about like Ironfish, because this is the project that was recently announced. And like, what is Ironfish? Is that an extension of the project you were doing before with Beanstalk? Is it still like a research-focused project or is there a product now? We're much more product-focused. So Ironfish technically is Beanstalk. Uh, and the reason why it got renamed is because we actually couldn't trademark Beanstalk. There's a credit card company, I believe, in Denver that took the name. Oh. <laughs> and we uh, wanted to trademark it. And uh, so we went with the name Ironfish. And ironically, or weirdly enough, a lot actually has changed in the code base from the transition of Beanstalk to Ironfish in a very pragmatic way. Like we even, we doubled down even more in terms of making Ironfish more accessible. And we kind of mean that in so many aspects, like running a full node for a layer one has traditionally been hard (laughs) for various reasons. Um, Running a miner for, you know, a full node has been traditionally hard. And I think like Grin, for instance, to give them a lot of credit, is probably one of the more easier projects to get started in terms of running a full node and running a miner. And they've done a lot of work on making their terminal UI work. And I remember like one of the engineers we hired, who's senior engineer, very brilliant. And it took him like two hours to figure out how to run a Grin miner. <laughs> and that right? was the easy one. Oh, <laughs> that was the easy one. Um, <laughs> And so for us, like really wanted to make an emphasis of this is a this is a product. Like we're focused on, on privacy. This is a new blockchain, but everything we're building from the ground up is very much focused on usability because we kind of strongly believe that if you are building, you know, this currency for the people, then the people should be able to run your software. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, and Ironfish is still very early and we have a ton of bugs and we have a ton of flaws. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to hide that. But our ethos is still the same. So we did launch our testnet April 6th. 
And if you want to run Ironfish, you have to brew tap <laughs> uh, and then brew install Ironfish. And then Ironfish start, you have a full node running, open another terminal, Ironfish miner start, you have a miner running, and that's it, you're done. Like you are now onboarded. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. But would you still have to set parameters? Like is there is that sort of like the onboard is easy, but then like do you still have to do something if you want it like optimized in a particular way? Sure. I mean, we have configs available, um, you know, if you want to connect to different bootstrap nodes. You can actually do almost everything from the command line. And then some things you have to go to the config file to change. But, you know, if you're a power user, you're probably familiar with that anyways. But if you're just curious and you wanted to figure out, okay, I want to set up a full node, um, how do I do that? That part we tried to make really easy. And, uh, and you know, and like, I want to be pretty humble about it. Like, there was a ton of learnings that we had throughout this project. And we know we have still a long way to go. You know, I think Ironfish did receive like the hug of death <laughs> on like day three post our launch, which was like a, you know, a double-edged sword. It's great to see how many people were using it. But, you know, like after I think it was like roughly 450 full nodes and probably that many miners, you know, we definitely did get syncing problems. So if you launch Ironfish today, you might have some problems. However, we do have a fix coming. Cool. <laughs> it's on staging right now. <laughs> you just called this the hug of death. Is this like too much love? What is it? Yeah. <laughs> the hug of death is, you know, like like when someone <laughs> posts something on like Hacker News or or it becomes like viral on Twitter and then the website goes down because too many people are clicking oh, on yeah. it. So before we launched Ironfish, I think we tested on something like like consistently tested on like, you know, 20 nodes, 20 miners, and it was all fine. And uh, when we talked to a bunch of other people who've launched test nets before, you know, we kind of thought, okay, we're going to have roughly 200 people run a full node. This is like from casual conversations of just other projects. And then, you know, we had like more than double that. We had like 450 people run a full node on day three. And that's when we started to have like syncing issues. <laughs> so again, got we're it, fixing it. it. It's on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know a little bit more about what this client software is. Like, first of all, is it a fork of Zcash? Because there is some relationship, right? Like, it's it, it, like I, as I've understood it, like Sapling and all that work that you did on Sapling, like it's connected to what you're doing with Ironfish. Yeah, is is it a fork of the actual client software, or is it something else? So Ironfish, as it as it is, is not a fork of Zcash. It's a new project from the ground up. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted to have flexibility of really like building out the features from the ground up to make it more usable. I was going to ask, uh, your Zcash inherited a lot from the Bitcoin code base. Uh, is this a completely new implementation or are we trying to inherit from older blockchains? No. So this is an entirely new implementation, which, you know, again, is a double-edged sword. It comes with benefits and it comes with drawbacks. So when we were called Beanstalk, we were actually fully in Rust. So we started with sapling and we took sapling. We didn't even take full sapling. We actually just took the proof generation verification and we inherited some other some other things to make it again like a more readable sapling in terms of code. <laughs> and and then we decided to kind of build on top of that because, you know, we started with Rust and Rust is a very performant efficient language and so we decided to build out the entire blockchain implementation in Rust as well. And we realized that was actually a very daunting challenge for many reasons. You know, Rust will make you go slower in terms of development cycles. Mm. And, you know, the open source community is getting to be, you know, more mature, but it's still not quite there yet. And if you wanted to have integrations, like if we were very much fighting the language. And then when we raised around and were able to hire more people, we realized hiring Rust developers was very difficult. <laughs> and if we wanted to make changes. there's not that many. Yeah, there's not that many. And, uh, <laughs> I'm struggling with that right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And uh, we wanted to experiment with a lot of ideas. Like we wanted to experiment with a new block syncing technique. And we realized that every experimentation kind of cycle, because we were doing things in Rust, would just take us a very long time. So it was very hard to innovate when your development cycles were three months instead of three weeks, as it would be in a different language. So we actually decided to switch to TypeScript, which, you know, in terms of performance, of course, is going to be slower than Rust. But in terms of development cycles, it gave us a ton of flexibility to be like more experimental and to think about efficiency in a much different way. And also to hire really great talent <laughs> that didn't have to have this like really steep learning curve. So, so Ironfish is a new blockchain from the ground up. 
And so, you know, for us, like we think about efficiency in a, in a very different way in terms of like, how do we sing faster, but like logically not so like, you know, the, the node takes up all of your CPU because Rust is pretty greedy in that regard. It's more like, how do we think about it in a more logical way? How do we make it sync faster? So it's kind of a blessing in disguise as well, because, you know, we are able to run on basically any device, like any device that can support Node <laughs> can support Ironfish. And the crazy idea that we kind of realized was actually our entire tech stack can be fit directly into the browser. Like we can have a full Node implementation be like directly in the browser, which at the time that I thought of this idea, I thought that was super revolutionary. Uh, and this was actually done before. This was, there's a project called Bcoin, uh, which is a Bitcoin implementation in JavaScript. And they have a client that works directly in the browser. I think that project, uh, for what it's worth, is somewhat abandoned. I'm not entirely sure. The Bitcoin team, Bitcoin is maintained by the Purse team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they put a lot of the development resources into uh, Handshake. And so mm. HNS, uh, uh. the Handshake node is based on Bitcoin. Gotcha. Um, so it's still somewhat maintained, uh, but not as much as it was three years ago. Gotcha. I mean, that project for us was just very encouraging to see that this is that this is possible. This has been done for Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, and Bitcoin mm. is, you know, a much, in terms of size, a much bigger blockchain. And this is still possible to be done in the, in the browser. What are the, what are the pros and cons of being able to run a node in the browser? I guess it's more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. It's lighter. But is there some downside to doing that too? Yeah, so a little bit more on the pros. Um, For privacy coins in particular, if you want full privacy, then you're going to have to run a full node. And even like clients and like Zcash has their um, implementation, it's not like you will be giving up some some privacy to it when you're using it. And I don't want to get into the details because like a very philosophical argument of like, okay, well, if this happens, then that happens and maybe you lose some privacy. Mm. But I think like most people will agree that to some extent you are leaking some privacy. So if you really want like full foolproof <laughs> privacy, you're going to be running a full node. And so for us, it's very important to make that accessible. How do you make a full node run you know, faster, easier, and so on. So for us, you know, the idea of Ironfish running the browser is a pretty powerful one because again, like if we're building this for the people, the people should be able to run it. And if we can make the argument that it's as easy to run as opening a tab um, with persistent storage, so don't worry, not it's every time you close the tab, it doesn't mean you have to restart, redownload Ironfish. Then that was like a very powerful thing for us. That's kind of what we're, what we're focused on. Cool. I guess, like, if you have a, a shielded account wallet, are you running a light client, like, on your phone, if you had that? Is that how you're syncing? Or are you, is your wallet syncing to a light client or a regular node and sending you the information back? This is actually just a clarification so, for me. Uh, so I think the way Zeke Wallet works, which is on your phone, um, so Zeke Wallet does support shielded transactions on your phone. I believe how it works is, first, there has to be a dedicated light client server that can support a phone and it can support the phone. Um, basically the phone will say, I would like these block headers or I'd like these like notes and whatnot. And this particular light client server, you know, can kind of give them like a trimmed down version of the block so that the phone can actually process it. So for instance, if you've used your Zeek wallet, you know, app for the first time, then uh, there's zero syncing time because the wallet understands it's a new wallet. I don't need to sync. If you use it once and then don't use it for, let's say, a couple of weeks, then the next time you come back to it, your wallet will be syncing to catch up. When we think about these things, there's really kind of two questions you want to ask, which is what can the server learn about the phone uh, or the light client? So can it learn what block the phone is on? Can it learn who, you know, who's running that, what the OS is? What kind of private information can it learn about the phone? And the other is what kind of thing can the server conceal from the phone? Uh, so can the server, you know, just not send me information about a block or a note and prevent me from learning that I received a payment or show me the wrong balance for my account? Yep. But is there, I understand that example. Now I want to go back to this browser example. So what you're talking about is you would actually be doing, I guess as an end user, I n- sort of never imagined that I would be running a node, but this is this is the way to get actual privacy. And the only way you can do that is if the node is so accessible that the end user, like 
the wallet is not talking to anything. The like it is the node that you're actually running that has all of the like that's what you're working from. Exactly. So instead of relying on the server to give you information, you are that server because that server is a full node. So now you're a full node. So most people use a router. So right now you're probably on a laptop recording this and you're probably connected to a router. So this means that your router is now kind of ferrying things back and forth. So your router assigns an IP for you to be used by, you know, other things. So your laptop as of now doesn't actually know it's public IP. If, if public IP is kind of the name to your device, your laptop currently doesn't know its name. Okay. So if it's trying to like reach out to another node, like, like let's say you're trying to reach out to James because James has a public computer. So you know, you know James's public IP directly. So you reach out to James and you get some information from James. But James actually doesn't know how to reach back to you because there's this router in the middle. There's this router between you and your computer. And so you need to tell James your name. But the problem is you don't know your name yet because your router needs to assign that for you. So, you know, James doesn't know how to reach you because, you know, it doesn't know, like, how to get to your computer through this router. But I've, like, requested, in this example, have I already requested something from him so I can actually get some info from him? Totally. But he's not sending it at me. It's like, I'm going, I want this, and I, and I fish it and pull it back, but it's not like he knows where that trajectory is exactly. Exactly. follow it. And uh, if, you know, after that connection is done, I can't push anything else out to you. I have to wait for you to call me again. Right. So if you are kind of nodes in a, you know, peer-to-peer distributed system, in this regard, you would be kind of like the greedy node. Like you would be getting everything that you want, but James can't get information from you because James doesn't know how to connect to you. Got it. So going back to the full node and why WebRTC is so exciting is because it makes that entire process a lot easier. The process of two nodes connecting to one another and the two nodes actually talking to one another without this kind of hindrance of going into your router settings and telling the router to, you know, forward your port and so on. So again, this is kind of like an easier process to run a full node because if you wanted to run a full node on Bitcoin or Ethereum, and if you wanted to be like actually fully connected, so like be fully active listening node, you would have to go through those extra steps, probably in your router or in your firewall to actually be fully connected. And WebRTC is a, is a technology that was actually invented by Google for video streaming for exactly this problem. Because, you know, if you, they realized if you have video streaming going through a centralized server, you're probably going to get, you know, to some degree a poor user performance because it has to go through another party and then go to someone else's computer. So instead, they were like, okay, how do we actually connect two computers together to do video streaming better? And they actually basically made WebRTC and incorporated that into the Chrome browser so you could do video streaming. So we're using WebRTC and WebSockets right now for a full node you know, implementation that runs in your terminal. But this was actually a technology that was built for the browser to make video streaming better. Anyways, yeah, so we're using the same technology that we're probably using right now for, for video streaming. But I want to understand back to like the way you described like launching an Ironfish node. Is it actually running in the browser or is that like the future is going to be running in the browser? So the current implementation runs in the terminal only, but because we're using TypeScript, Wasm, or I guess Rust with Wasm, the full implementation actually could run in the browser. And so that is definitely a feature that we're pretty excited about, but we do want to focus on making sure that the core protocol works you know, as intended in the terminal. So make sure like those bugs are out of the way before kind of progressing to the next one. And you built this entirely from the ground up, as you'd mentioned before, and yet it still has this privacy part. Like how is Sapling integrated into that? Like what is that connection point then? So, you you know, it's not similar to the Zcash node software. So, or I, I guess it still has some of these Sapling principles in it or like some some of that code is is running within it. So yeah, how does that connect? Yeah, so Sapling is the mechanism for making transactions private. We took Sapling, we took some of the Zcash code, we wrote some some of our own code to make it uh, kind of our, our own implementation of Sapling to some degree. I don't want to give them a lot of credit though. <laughs> so that is basically the the privacy transaction mechanism. And, you know, Sapling is written in Rust, so we have it kind of working in our TypeScript implementation through Wasm as the glue layer effectively. And then, you know, in terms of our implementation of the full node that we've done basically from the ground up, 
And, you know, we do take a lot of inspirations from Bitcoin, honestly, and some inspirations from Ethereum. Um, but in terms of like implementation, we did it all from the ground up. And Sapling is just our mechanism for making those private transactions. So uh, like Zcash, this is a blockchain with, you know, Sapling for making transactions. Correct. The distinction is that we have no way of doing transparent transactions. It's only private transactions. So you don't have any of the weird Bitcoin script uh, cruft? No. Uh, speaking of scripts, though, we do want to go into that trajectory. So kind of going back to the thing that I've said to the, at the beginning of the of the talk is, you know, we want to make this more into a privacy platform. Right now, it only supports our infrastructure, the native currency. But we want to get to a world where we could bridge assets from other chains and basically be the shielded pool for all their assets. So again, we want to make uh, Ironfish the privacy platform. So we don't have programmability yet, but we do want to get there so that we can support other assets from other chains and make Ironfish more of a privacy platform for everybody else too. So yeah, it's a long road and we have some ideas of how to get there, but you know, we will be getting to a future where we have some functionalities or permissions. So it'll be a lot, a lot less flexible than a smart contract on Ethereum. It'll probably look a lot more like permissions per account per asset but we will have some concept of programmability in the future. Hmm. You kind of talk about it being the privacy center of other networks, other chains, but like, would you then be thinking about it as creating bridges to a lot of different places? Or would you then, like, could you turn this into an L2 to Ethereum and then allow, you know, that to be your connection point? Yeah, when we look at L2 designs, uh, especially like for Ethereum and, you know, Aztec is working on one that's more privacy focused uh, for Ethereum. The question is, are they looking a lot like L1s, right? Like, are these just L1s with bridges to specifically Ethereum? More and more. <laughs> yeah, they're looking more and more like L1s, but yeah. very integrated to a particular chain, which gives them the right to call themselves L2s to some, to some regard. And so for us, when we think about Ironfish, it's, you know, we want to build bridges, not to just one chain, but to many chains. And so, you know, right now we're definitely an L1. We only have Ironfish as the only asset. We want to get to a world where we support assets from other chains. And so instead of like building a bunch of L2s for other chains, we have Ironfish where, you know, it's like this huge shielded pool for all these other assets where one transaction is indistinguishable from a different transaction. So regarding if you trade you know, some Cosmos asset for some Ethereum asset for some native Ironfish asset, the transactions will be indistinguishable. So you can't actually tell that. Hmm. Would you use something like IBC as well? Is that something like if you implemented IBC, would you then automatically, this is actually for you, James, would you then be able to be connected to like all of the zones in the Cosmos context? I, I think so. This is a really interesting question because uh, there are a lot of choices for bridging right now. So IBC is one avenue that you could go down to connect to the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, Elena, do you have like a concrete plan for bridges or is this something that's still very much in development? Yeah, so I think we talked about bridges when you were still working on Suma, which was two years ago, right? Like with Zcon 1. Yeah. And so back then there were already a lot of bridging solutions and now we have even more bridging solutions and they are different types of bridging solutions. Ones like Suma, which are, you know, totally decentralized in terms of like there's no middleman. Then there's ones that keep network where the middleman is decentralized, but there is a middleman, so to speak, mm -hmm. which is the keep network. And then there's ones that are, you know, fairly centralized where, you know, things called federated or something like that, where there is literally a centralized authority that says we'll escrow your Bitcoin and then like give you wrap Bitcoin on top of, you know, Ethereum or whatever. So for us, in terms of like bridging solutions, we're pretty agnostic. Like we want to be able to support all those bridging solutions. And I also want to make sure that we don't work on the bridging solutions as Ironfish, like that we work with others for two reasons. One, because it makes the community stronger. And two, because, you know, like as much as we can learn on this, there are now experts on bridges. Like there are companies being built around this, multiple ones. And so for us, is you know, it, it would be kind of silly to build our own bridge when we can convince these other people to partner with us and to build those bridges, you know, nudge, nudge, keep network <laughs> uh, or, or, or somebody else. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on, it's, you know, I think it would be a per case basis. I think we'll focus on Ethereum first. That seems like a very 
like a clear thing to focus on first. You know, we might focus on Bitcoin next, you know, somewhere down the line, we might uh, focus on Cosmos. So I think it might be like a very like per chain or per protocol sort of basis. Mm. And we'll probably try and focus on existing solutions. So if someone already did make a bridge from Cosmos to Ethereum, and I think someone actually did, <laughs> we'd probably go to them and, and talk to them and, and work with them. So yeah, that's kind of how we think about it. Like like our job is to make sure that Ironfish can support those bridges and then go to people who actually make a business out of it to work with them. I want to explore a little bit like use like the actual use of Ironfish. I want to kind of go from a user's perspective. Like you mentioned there it could be a privacy platform with private computation, maybe not extensive computation, but some computation. Like permissions, like very basic ones. So the okay. permissions I will want is primarily to support uh, stable coins uh, and bridges. So these permissions are going to be very much like can this can this address burn or mint a certain asset because they have the permission to do so. So it'll it'll not be like full zk computation. Um, I don't think we'll get to that anytime soon. But we do want to focus on very like pragmatic use cases of how do we support Dai on top of Ironfish. So now you can transact, you know, stable coin or a synthetic dollar on Ironfish totally privately. Cool. And then even with just the like very basic permissions of like, can this address mint or burn, we can support stable coins that are not algorithmic. It's like USDC style when there's like an actual bank account and there's an address that has permissions to mint that coin. And so like something like USDC could mint a stable privacy coin on top of Ironfish. The idea here is really then to provide primarily like private transaction in a shielded environment that is running in your browser potentially, uh, which sounds really cool. So you would be running your own full node in the browser. Everything you do is completely private um, without needing like even to call a light client. Like you wouldn't even have to have that extra step. Like what, what kind of economy do you really envision happening in there? Do you see it as just like, I'm paying for something, I'm doing subscriptions maybe? I'm like, what, yeah, what kind of use cases do you imagine people using this for? Yeah, so privacy coins in particular get this question a lot. Well, who's going to use you in, the, in this very like, you know. Is it like, criminals? <laughs> exactly. Is it criminals? Is it illicit activity? What? Like, are you going to make Silk Road be a lot I definitely am not asking you that in that tone, but I, but I think it would be cool to hear your answer anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like when I think about privacy, there's like two use cases. One is like very philosophical of like, we need privacy. Like cash is going away. We don't have a digital cash alternative. You know, we kind of need like a very private dollar for everyday use cases. Um, and these are, you know, not necessarily illicit use cases. Like maybe you want to go see a therapist and not have anybody know about that mm. because it's private information. Um, maybe you're going through the U.S. immigration process. And even now, if you buy weed in a state where it's totally legal, that could actually jeopardize your immigration process. Yeah, there's like a ton of use cases where you might just want privacy. And we're going to a world where without cash, like everything happens online, you're starting to lose that. Mm. So, so that's like a very philosophical question of like, we actually need privacy, and we're losing it pretty like rapidly. <laughs> and then the other answer is a very pragmatic one, which is like, I think if crypto is going to have a future as a payment system or as a banking solution, you're going to have to need privacy. Like when you talk to normal people and explain to them how Ethereum works, that yes, you actually can open Etherscan in incognito window even and still look at your wallet <laughs> and realize that everyone else can too. Yeah. <laughs> um, people are pretty shocked about that. Yeah. And so the very pragmatic approach is if we want to have crypto have mass adoption, we kind of need to have a, a privacy layer because this is actually privacy coins are probably the closest to the paradigm that we have today of having some expectation about our financial privacy. Yeah. Like if you and I interacted and maybe I bought you coffee, I shouldn't have the right to look at your bank account. Right. And in crypto, it's kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, it's a very pragmatic approach of like actually crypto probably doesn't have a future as a payment system if everything's so, so out in the open. One of the, uh, this has come up a few times in, I don't know if it was on the podcast or events or something, but it was the idea of trying to add privacy after the fact versus trying to build it in at the, at the beginning. Like the, a lot of the problems with trying to claw back privacy when it's gone mm -hmm. is that you're not really going to get what you need. It's just sort of add-ons. It might obscure a little bit about what you're doing 
to certain people, but there's ways around that. Whereas if you have systems that have privacy at the heart, then you can actually potentially have truly private systems. That's That's been like a something I, that I'm hearing a lot from various camps. And this is where it's kind of interesting. You build it from the ground up with privacy in mind to be very usable without having to use these other like agents in order to connect to other people. Do you want this to be used actually by like the big businesses of the world? Or do you actually prefer this to be used by the individuals of the world? Like I'm kind of trying to figure out if this, if this is something that eventually becomes like an institutional play or if it's really like, this is for everyday people. I mean, the the double-edged sword of like building out in the open in a very decentralized way is that you kind of don't have a choice. <laughs> uh, and you can direct the product to some degree, like we can make it, you know, maybe more polished such that banks would be more comfortable with using it or maybe like more casual so that, you know, it's more of a, a product for the people. But at the end of the day, you kind of don't really have a choice. Now, I actually do think that it is important for banks to get into crypto for like, once again, crypto adoption. Mm-hmm. And banks right now are pretty nervous about the fact that everything's so out in the open. I think that was why Ripple was so popular and also why Ripple got a lot of backlash because banks weren't using the public Ripple that we were using. They were using kind of on-prem Ripple because privacy was a big concern for these banks. Yeah, so to some degree, like, do I prefer one way or the other? I don't think I have a preference. I think both are actually very important. And we're definitely building Ironfish so that it it could potentially be used for both. Cool. So if somebody wants to start participating in the Ironfish community or running some of the infrastructure, where should they go? Yeah, so we'll post links on the onboarding docs for how to get started. Um, We'll also post our GitHub, so you can look at all the code and also the installation instructions from source. And then we have a Discord, which is a pretty huge community at this point of other people who are running the Ironfish node, um, who have questions about it. So if you want to talk to any of us or have questions or feedback to post, um, please go to our Discord. Cool. Well, I'm really excited to hear more about this as it develops. And I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your not only Ironfish and how it works, but like your journey to getting to this point and, and your hope for what it could be. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate to be on here. Yeah, I'm uh, running a node downstairs. I'm really excited to be able to uh, get to use it when it goes mainnet. Nice. Very cool. So thanks again. And thanks, James. Thank you, Anna. It's good to be here again. And uh, thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>